Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to hear you sing. Thank you, Joe and Rose, for that prayer and leading. This morning, uh, we are toward the tail end of a teaching focus we've been on for most of the summer at this point on the Sermon on the Mount. So if it's your first Sunday with us, uh, welcome. You won't be lost, but we are at chapter 7 of chapters 5, 6, and 7 today. Uh, So I want to start, let's just open up, uh, let me say a prayer for us as we begin, focus our attention in as we continue in worship. God, illuminate our hearts, focus our attention and energies toward you. There's a lot of distraction that we walked in with, and the singing and the praying has brought us closer, so be with us in this space. Amen. If you've got a Bible, you can open it to the verses you just heard read in chapter 7 of Matthew, and uh, we'll get going together. I did not intend to preach on this next verse that we're going to talk about, but it's so strange that we have to talk about it a little bit. And so let me read it for you. Just so you hear it. This is verse 6. It says, don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before swine. Swine's a fancy word for pigs. Or they will trample them underfoot and turn and they will maul you. And then Jesus continues on, ask and it'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Let's talk for just a second about dogs, pearls and pigs as a way in this morning. I don't know what, I didn't know what was going on here. It took me tons and tons of reading to try to figure out what was going on here. The, the dogs, what is the thing that is holy? What are the pigs and what are the pearls? Like, I don't, I didn't get it. And maybe you did, and so you're ahead of the game here. But let me sort of lay the groundwork for what we're talking about, because this verse belongs with what follows it. This section on asking and seeking and knocking. This conversation, this, this sermon today, we're going to talk about our attention, what it is we focus on. And what we give our attention to is often the things that we are either aware of or unaware of, but what we are pledging some level of loyalty toward. So that is what this verse is concerned with. You hear the language of don't give what is holy to dogs or don't throw your pearls before swine. Or if you do, then they're going to like turn around and they're going to maul you and they're going to trample everything underfoot. Pigs, And dogs are a very New Testament way of talking about people who are not part of the nation of Israel. It's not a very nice way to talk about them. I don't recommend you talk about people who are not like you, like pigs and like dogs. But Jesus is using the idioms at the time to talk about different folks. And part of what he is saying here is there will be always competing loyalties. And that's the heart of this passage today. There will always be competing loyalties. And if you sort of pitch yourself toward the powers that be. That's what pigs and dogs represent. It's the powers that be. It's the Caesars on the throne. It's the high priest. It's whoever holds power and authority in that place that is not God. If you are to pledge yourself to them, like, just be careful. Because when that happens, you will think that they are on your side, but as soon as they're not, they will turn and they will maul you. They'll trample this underfoot. The last time we heard the language of trampling underfoot was in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it talks about being salt and light. Do you remember this passage about salt and light? It says, if salt has lost its saltiness, then it's not good for anything to be tossed out and trampled underfoot. And the danger there was that we would become so sort of 
affectionate toward the way the world works that we would lose any distinction from that world. And the, when we talk about world, we're talking about the power structures that be. So the background here is this big, big concept called the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been with us for the last like couple of months, we've talked plenty about the kingdom of heaven, but let me just say again what it is and what it what it's not in the way Jesus is talking about it. The kingdom of heaven is not the place that we imagine we go to when we die. That's a really reduced understanding of the kingdom of heaven. Partly because Jesus says just a few chapters before, repent because the kingdom of heaven is what? It's like right here. It's near. There's something imminent about this kingdom. And and what Jesus is doing in this entire Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing is painting a picture So imagine you're standing in this world, and Jesus wants you to see the world differently. It's a lot like this building. And so Jesus is sort of building up walls and windows and a roof, and then inviting us to inhabit that space. It's part of what it means to be in this space. The reason we have stained glass windows is partly because they tell a story, but partly because when we look out them, we see the world differently. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's painting a picture of the kingdom of heaven. In chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount is sort of the like, this is the pitch of the thing. This is what it looks like if we were to color it in. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. And the reason that Jesus uses the language of kingdom is because there are already kingdoms all around him. Particularly, there is the big fat word that we talk about a lot around here, which is empire. Empire in that time was Rome. Rome sort of ruled throughout Israel. And even the Hebrew people, though they were in the land, it wasn't really their land. They didn't have freedom of movement. They were taxed pretty heavily. They could worship only as much as the Romans would let them worship until it got out of hand. Rome was empire. Before Rome, it was Babylon. Before Babylon, it was Egypt. You could fast forward. There are still empires now. There is this danger, this awareness that we should probably hold on to that we likely live inside of empire. And it competes with the kingdom of God for our affection, for our loyalty. That is what is happening in the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus says, like, don't give what is holy to those who won't take care of it. Don't throw your treasure in front of those who might trample it. He's warning us to not get too cozy with what the world wields as power. There are different ways that that happens now. If you found yourself like a little bit on edge for the last... 10 years or 20 years, but at least the last couple, because everything, the whole noise kind of happening around you in politics or an economy and culture and society, it all feels a little off center or super off center. Um, There might be this desire to see the way that power is wielded in the world and be drawn in to it. And when that happens, you will find yourself often taking a step away from what we might call faithfulness to God. The way that the Romans exercised this kind of control was bread and circus. 
So they had like the Coliseum, they had games, they had a lot of food. If you were concerned with where your food was going to come from, and that's always been a concern, even now, food and shelter and safety, but you would be concerned about this at the time. And if you were part of this area, Rome gave you your bread. That was what Rome did. It was part of the way they kept society kind of calm and cool and collected. And then also circus, this kind of big distraction. Now, if we think that bread and circus, that those are old ideas, we're not paying attention. What these are and what they functioned as back then too were distractions. Distractions from becoming too loyal to anything but empire. And that has always been true. Empire is that which totalizes your vision. It becomes the only thing that you can see or that you can imagine. And part of the way that that is done is by keeping you distracted from any other kind of allegiance that you could have in the world. So I want to talk a little bit about distraction and I want to talk about attention and focus this morning. But I want to start with a video that likely a lot of you have seen, but it's always fun to watch a video together. And so we're going to show it again. If you know where this is going, please don't spoil it for your neighbor until the end. Uh, Sean, would you mind queuing it up? We're going to, we're going to talk about distractions together. Some of you didn't see the gorilla. I'm shocked. Let's be really honest. Let's ask, just show of hands. Who got 15 right? That's really good. Who did not see the gorilla the first time? That's a lot of people. Who were distracted by the style choices that they were wearing in the video? You could totally tell it was from the 90s, right? And those are, the styles are almost back. This video is a really good uh, sort of peek into this idea of attention and where you place it and what you miss, sort of attention blindness. What you're looking at sort of can block out other things that you're not seeing. I want to tell you a story about when this happened to me. And why it's super dangerous not to see the gorilla. So, when I was a kid, you may have heard that I worked at a snowball stand in New Orleans. I've found that snowball is not a universal term, so it's like a shaved ice or a snow cone. But in New Orleans, we call them snowballs. But it's not the thing you throw at people, it's the thing you eat. Looks like that. Looks like that. Uh, so, I worked there, my brother worked there, my mom, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, Corey, worked there. It was a great time. If you can figure out how to work in a snowball stand at 16 years old in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, you have just, like, made it in life. But, I was 16, and I knew how to do math, but I didn't know how to avoid scams. And it was the Ninth Ward of New Orleans where scams were rampant. And so, at one time, I was at the window, and I was taking money. And uh, it's all cash, because, of course, it's all cash. What kind of world would it be if we had credit cards at the time? So I'm taking cash, and there's this long line. It feels a little bit like it feels in here on that day. It was really hot. So everybody was coming out to get a snowball. So the line, it wraps down our, like, down our porch, down the stairs, and into the parking lot. And I'm kind of freaking out at this point because I'm 16, and I don't know how to get this line moving. And this guy comes up, and you could, he could see it on my face that I was panicking, that I couldn't get the line moving. And he saw a mark. And so I, I promise, I've tried to figure out how he did this to me. Like once a year, I sit down with what happened to me, to, and I still can't figure it out. It could still happen to me. So he did what's called like uh, a short scam, where he kept asking for change in a cycle. Has anyone been scammed this way? You have? Was it when you were at Ben and Jerry's? 
Okay. So I don't really, maybe later you can tell me how to guard from this. But he kept asking for change and I kept giving him change he needed and he kept breaking change down further and further. And at some point, finally, I said to him, sir, you have all the change that you could ever need. Because he did, because I'd given him all of my money. And so he goes, okay, and he leaves. And I turn and look at my mom and I, I think, pretty sure I just got robbed. So I stop. That we make, we close down the register and we count the till. Sure enough, I'm $80 short. Which in like 45 seconds, that's a lot of money to give away. Oh, I felt like an idiot. And I was so frustrated, but I was not focused on this guy in front of me. I was focused on the line that was so long and how to get it moving again. And he knew that I wasn't paying attention. And in that distraction could take advantage of me. It's gotta be careful what you pay attention to in these kinds of situations. Here is the deeper truth right now. Is that we are chronically distracted. Chronically distracted. And this is just, it's just true. I don't know if you feel this way, but ask anyone around you and this is likely true. This is what it feels like for me at work. And maybe this is something that you grapple with too. Did you know that you can get texts from your phone on your computer? Which means every time somebody wants to talk to you, every one of my devices makes a noise all across my office. And I mute two of them, but I forget to mute the third one. And I sit down to work and then the email pops up. And then after I answer the email, some other message pops up. And then someone, right, that's how work sometimes can feel, at least in your right now thinking like John Jay, you need better habits you probably need somebody who can bring your energies into line there are other ways that we could look at this if you have a kid and that kid has a smartphone there's a really good chance that that kid could develop some kind of attention deficit disorder they are finding these weird links between the amount of time we're spending in front of screens and our ability or inability to sustain focused attention over time do you have, who has a phone in here on them right now? I think most all of us. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of us have checked that phone since we've been in here in worship? Oh, you answered. You didn't have to answer out loud. But you did. Yeah, you, maybe you checked the Bible app, but then you're checking that and then something else pings you. And every once in a while, sometimes you will even text me during a sermon to ask a question that I'm going to answer later. I feel like that's happened before. <laughs> We're chronically distracted. And that is by design. Right now, your attention is what's for sale. And if you have one of these in your pocket, then you have a way for folks to get to you anytime they want to call on you. You know how everybody's trying to figure out how to make a self-driving car? Part of the reason that that's such a sought-after technology is because one of the only places where we focus our attention, hopefully, is when we're driving. But what if we didn't have to pay attention to the road and we could just sit there? We could buy stuff on Amazon if we didn't have to drive. It matters to keep us distracted, bread and circus. What's happening inside your pocket or what's happening on your computer screen is what casinos figured out a long time ago which is that our attention is easy to hack. It's easy to get us to focus on certain things, either with glittery rewards or with chaos or all of these other kind of psychological tools, behavioral psychology. We live inside of a Skinner box. 
I don't know about you, but I feel exhausted, surrounded by slot machines, just kind of always demanding my attention and my time. And it is worth remembering that your attention is for sale. Someone is buying it and someone is leveraging it. And it takes concerted effort to show up anywhere and find stillness and quiet long enough to hear something outside of the noise. Part of the beauty of this hour, hour and a half that we're together is that we have a chance to be quiet. It's becoming a luxury to be able to focus your attention anywhere for any length of time. So part of what Jesus is asking us to do here is to reclaim our gaze, to reclaim our attention. When Jesus is inaugurated into his ministry, when he's baptized in the river by his cousin John, and then the very next thing that happens is the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, and in the wilderness Jesus is tempted, tempted in all the ways that we are tempted. And this is the sort of the core of the temptation, that Jesus would use power like the world uses power. That's the temptation. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, he adds this line in there, lead us not into temptation, because Jesus had just come from that temptation to wield power like the world wields power. Jesus knows that our gaze will drift. Our attention will drift. And so it gives us this really lovely and practical way to focus back in. Gives it to us in the language of, well, of prayer. One writer says that prayer is absolutely unmixed attention. Think about the last time you gave anything or anyone absolute unmixed attention. Full presence. We are being trained in how to be chronically distracted. They can find the ways that our brains are being rewired for that sort of glittery, shimmering object all the time that we chase. And it vibrates really weird and our minds are hard to settle. And so it takes concerted effort to focus. Prayer becomes the language that Jesus gives us for how to focus. Breaks it down into three verbs. These are three commands that are given. Ask, seek, and knock. Part of the wisdom here is that what you attend to, what you seek to notice, is often what you will find. So, if what you're always looking for are the ways that the world is screwed up, I promise you, you will find that. You don't have to look very far. If you're trying to figure out why things are falling in on themselves or why your life is ruined or why you should be cynical, or you can find those. You, what you seek, you will likely find. If you are looking for reasons to criticize your partner, your spouse, or your child, you will find reasons. What Jesus is saying is, If you intend to find God, you're going to have to look. You're going to have to put some effort into the thing. It's not that God is trying to be hidden somewhere. 
But we're going to find what we're looking for. For some groups in Jesus' time, they were using the law. Well, what if we could find God through the law, through these commandments, which isn't a terrible thing, but what happens when all you look for is the law? You expand it and you expand it. It's all that you can see. And Jesus says the law was not something to look at. It was something to look through, to see the world. Jesus keeps giving us back the world, keeps giving us back the kingdom, giving us back the real reality and saying, see this. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Can you comprehend the world as God sees it? Not if you're not trying, asking, seeking, knocking, attending to it all the time. I have, as long as I can remember, uh, I'm from New Orleans and from the South, and I don't know if you know this, but there's not like a lot of surfing that happens in New Orleans. And, but I remember growing up just craving all the time that feeling of being inside of a, of a barrel. Has anyone done that in here, by the way? Surfed through a barrel? Let's see those hands. No one can help me. Man. So that was always just like one of my sort of bucket lists, and I'm maybe 5% there. Uh, but since I've moved here, I was like, this is perfect. The beach is an hour away. Get aboard, head out on the water. It turns out that the ocean is mysterious and you can get really hurt out there. And so I've had to develop a focused attention on the water in a way that I was not used to seeing it. For for most of us, like the ocean's just the ocean and you might have a sense of where the, like the undertow is or the riptide. You definitely have a sense of what a shark looks like or what a dolphin looks like. But I'm having to attend to, focus my attention on how the waves roll in, where they peak, where the pocket is. All of this matters, A, so I don't drown, and B, so I might have a chance at one day getting inside the barrel. Whenever you develop like a new skill, I don't know when the last time was you developed a new skill. The banjo was one of my last ones I tried to work on in grad school. You are introduced to a whole new world of seeing. It changes you. It focuses your It's a life of discipline. I've had to learn to see the waves in a new way. And one of the things I do is I go out with a buddy who's really good and he tells me what he sees, how he reads the ocean. And all of a sudden the thing looks different to me because someone with wisdom has shown me. There are a hundred different versions of this. Matt, I imagine if I asked Erin, she's learning how to see production from behind the scenes in a new way as she's been working with you. Whatever your own field is, you've learned how to attend to it. What Jesus is asking us here is to attend to God, to seek after God. I imagine that some of us, we, we would like to encounter the divine, but we maybe aren't. And I wonder, too, if it's sometimes just a sort of like, I've been sitting here waiting. I haven't been pushing God away. And so, like, the door is just not opening in front of me. But we haven't stepped toward it much at all. We have to put some energy into the thing. We have to take some steps because the world is pulling and tugging on us. 
after Jesus, this guy named Paul shows up in the New Testament. Paul is a, a rabbi and a Pharisee, which means he's a super duper Jew who knows everything and does all stuff the right way. And he has this encounter with Jesus and has this conversion moment that begins to sort of go all throughout the area telling this story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how Jesus brings this whole story to its conclusion. And at some point in the book of Acts, which is the story of how the church spreads throughout the area, Acts chapter 17, Paul is in a place called Athens, which is sort of the center of philosophy and of new and emerging thoughts. And he begins to engage them in what they're seeing and what they're focusing on. So he stands in front of them and he says to them, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For I went through the city now, look carefully at the objects of your worship. And I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. But then this, the God who made the world and everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything, since he himself gave to all humanity life and breadth and everything. There's that language again from the Sermon on the Mount. God knows what you need even before you ask. And God knows how to give good gifts to God's children. And says, from one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit all of the earth. And he allotted times for their existence and boundaries for where they would live. And then this, so that they would seek after God and perhaps feel for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each of us. I love that language. That they would search for God, perhaps even feel around for him. When we were an undergrad in uh, North Louisiana, there was a, and there still is, a school for the blind in our city, in the town. And what that meant was there were a lot of folks who would show up in this town who were learning how to see in a world without sight either newly blind. It was, it was an amazing experience to get to see the way that folks regained independence and freedom in the world. And for a little bit, I worked at the, at the uh, college pool. And so I was sitting there and I, I looked out and there was this uh, group of three young adults who came in who had the, their eyes covered, which let me know that they were uh, part of this school for the blind. And there was this high dive. And, uh, by the way, that's the word for feeling toward heaven, soloing toward heaven. It's the same word for psalm or to sing or to, to grope for. But these three, these three adults, uh, they went straight for the high dive, which seemed like a crazy idea to me because they couldn't see. And they went and they jumped off. Two of them had been to the high dive before and they knew what to do. They leave the, the, their stick on the ground and they would climb up the ladder and they would, you'd see, walk out the diving board. And as soon as the handrails disappear, because you've got, you know, seven or eight feet of board after, they would use their foot and feel the edge until they felt to the edge of the board. And they'd make sure that they were actually facing off the front of the board and not the side. And then they would jump, right? Like off a 10 meter board. I was terrified. So the first two who've been at this before, up, down, jump, fine. And they're super excited. And then their friend, 
goes up to the top. And this is all new for him. And I listened, watched the way that the two friends coached him on how to make it up the ladder and across the board and down into the water. I saw the attention and the focus. The two friends, they would splash water to where the guy was going to land so he could hear it. They were refining his vision, teaching him how to pay attention so that he could have this experience. And then he leaps. And it was, it was glorious. It was amazing. That motion, not being able to see and feeling for the edge of the board, sometimes that's exactly, exactly what prayer feels like. You can't see a thing. You don't know if it's working. You're not sure what you're moving toward. And you're just hoping and grasping and feeling your way through. I meet families a lot who have like a, a child becoming an adult and watch them grappling in the dark for faith. Whatever they had been given isn't working anymore and you can, the parents can see the kid sort of this, trying to find God again. And it's terrifying because you're not sure what's going to happen. But there is a comfort I always want to give back to those folks that I can see that they are that they are trying to find, that they are seeking after. And anytime I meet somebody and I, they don't have the same kind of language for Jesus or God or heaven or, or the, the whole package that we've been given, but I can feel them feeling and I can feel them reaching, I, I sort of take a deep breath. I have this hope that God will find them and that they will find God. Because like Paul says in Acts, We're meant to search for God and and feel for him and find him because he's not so far from each of us. One of my favorite poems, and you will likely know it if you don't already, is from Mary Oliver, Instructions for Living a Life. Does anyone remember the first line of the poem? It's a three-line poem. And it's delivered in a very similar cadence to the way Jesus instructs us. So here it is again for you. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished and tell about it. That feels to me a great synopsis of what it means to follow Jesus. And what Jesus is teaching us. How to move through the world attentively. And to discern in the world and through the noise the voice of God and signs of the kingdom. And then to tell others about it, to throw water underneath the diving board and to holler at the friends that it's okay to jump. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. Prayer might be the language that we use for how we pay attention. When we talk about this passage, sometimes folks will say, I asked, I asked and I asked, and and God didn't give me what I asked for, so God must not have been listening Because for a lot of us, prayer is sort of like having a magic genie that answers wishes. But prayer is intended to focus our attention and our affection. It's to create inside of us a hunger and a thirst. One other writer says, expectation is the lost cousin of attention. When we seek after God, do we expect to find God? Or do we expect to encounter the void? 
Because God is not so far away. Living inside of hope, inside of promise, means we live with the expectation that God is not so far away. And God is not hidden from us. God can be mysterious. And God is. And God is wild and God is free. But God is not on the run from us. Now, I always tell you, whenever I'm prepping for a teaching or a sermon, I end up in the middle of whatever it is that is sort of the struggle of the text. So this week, every time I sat down to study, I promise you, every single one of you in here texted me. Like, all the same time. That kind of thing was happening all week long. And uh, Friday's the day I get to spend a lot of the day working towards Sunday. And I remember sitting down and thinking, I should probably, I should probably check the news in case something crazy happened. Because that's what this moment is calling for. And like five minutes later, I thought, I'm back in it. Like, I'm back in the distraction. So I focus again. And right, and then another thing pulls me. And so I focus again. Another thing pulls me. And it was late in the day on Friday. And I finally was just needed to step away. I needed to find some quiet space. And so uh, I made a decision on how I would use my time. And I was fortunate that others help me be aware. We have a couple of members in our congregation who are uh, older and they're, um, have been sick for the last couple of weeks. And one of these folks has been pretty sick this last week and we're not sure how things are going to break. And, uh, he's just like one of the saints of our church, just a pillar. And I thought I need to set this aside and I need to just go sit in this hospital room with this man and his family and pay attention anticipate and expect that God will be there. Now, part of the reason I knew that God was likely going to be there is because this man was there. And where this guy is, God is usually not too far away. It's full of wisdom. So I sat down with Bob. Bob is his name. And uh, he, he wasn't doing well. But if you're with somebody who is uh, at this stage of health, you have to work really hard to hear what they're saying. Because intelligible speech it comes in fits and starts and uh but he held my hand and as happens in these kind of rooms the family is feeling all kind of things there's a lot of exhaustion in the air because everyone has been caring for one another for a long time and so the room is just kind of humming with background noises nurses are coming in and out bringing food the machine is beeping there was a lot that I could have focused on, but I wanted to be here and be present and, and see if God was here too. And I came expecting to find God. And so I held his hand for a while and prayed for a while. I slowed down my breathing and I tried to have that absolute unmixed attention. For where I was. Bob said three things I could understand that day. As he started to get a sense for who was in the room. Timna was there with us. A friend of Bob's who had been in his life for over a decade. Some of Bob's family. He sort of pulled out of wherever his mind was. And he spoke over the room. Just the word of blessing to bless you all. 
I would have missed it if I hadn't have been listening intently. It was barely audible and it was gone. But there was my first sign, that first wonder of paying attention. And then toward the end of the visit, we all were sort of grappling for what to pray for in this moment. And Bob speaks really clear. And he kind of leans back and he says, I'm so sick. Please pray for me. And he says this three or four or five times, really clear. I'm so sick. Please pray for me. And I thought in that moment, well, there it is. Everything that had been distracting me for the week sort of fell away. And this invitation to see the world as this saint has seen the world for so long was the space that I stepped into. And what did he do but turn my attention and affections back to God? Not even pray that I get better, but just please pray for me. If there is any space in the world that we will flee from and flee into distraction, it is in the face of death. And Jesus knows it. Because the path that Jesus sets us on is the path of the cross. And so to step into a hospital room full of the feeling of death is the space where we ask to be most aware of God. Here, we get about an hour, an hour and a half together. Out there are tens or hundreds of hours that we are giving to other things. And if the only time that we are seeking after the divine is in this space, the odds of us finding God are very slim. And there will be a hundred different reasons every day for you to turn your attention to something else that's kind of shimmering in the distance. But God says, if you will look, if you will just move toward, even if you're stumbling in the dark, like a blind man on the edge of a high dive, at some point you'll find the edge, and at some point I'll ask you to jump. And when we step off, it's with the expectation that God will catch us. Because God is not so very far away. And what Bob taught me in that room on Friday is that God has not ever left Bob even in that space. And so why am I so afraid that God is not able to be found? You can find him all around. Even now, would you pray with me? God, the world flickers and pulses and calls for us. And we are easily distracted by quick fixes, by simple solutions, by kitsch. But you are calling us to something deeper, a deeper awareness the way that you are present in and through all things. And there is no space, not even death, where you cannot be found. Not in heaven or in hell. You are 
available. So we make ourselves available. We are trying to tune our ears and our eyes to you. So if you would show us just a little of what we're looking for, that'll be enough for now. Amen.